Father, we thank you for your word. It is good for us. Uh, it is all God-breathed in every part and portion. Lord, and we know that you have, uh, you have given us your word to help us. Uh, first and foremost, to help us know you. You have revealed yourself to us through your word. And so, God, we want to we hear from you. And, Lord, so we ask for, uh, for, for you to work in us that we would hear from you uh, right now that you would quiet uh, distractions, that you would uh, quiet our burdens, that you would quiet the, uh, even the problems and the trials, Lord God, that, that uh, are just looming over our head that we know uh, we're going to have to deal with as soon as we step out of this place, Lord. Would you allow us in this time to be aware of your presence, to hear from you, and most of all, as we turn to your word, to see your goodness, to see your wisdom, and to see Christ, who is the centerpiece of all of Scripture. So we ask that you would do that. We know that your word never comes back void, that you're faithful, to keep your promises, and that you will build us up through your word and through your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going through the book of uh, 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in the first century, a, a, uh, a, a city uh, which was diverse, a city which was global, a city in which anything really, anything would go, anything would fly. Um, and if you've, been, if you've been with us through that series, you, you've seen that and you know that. Um, we're coming to one part of 1 Corinthians. There's a couple parts of 1 Corinthians that are really challenging passages. This one in particular is top three uh, most challenging slash confusing passages in the New Testament. Uh, and when I looked at uh, people who had preached through 1 Corinthians before, I noticed a very uh, odd coincidence. They all stopped their sermon series in 1 Corinthians right before chapter 11. And I, I thought to myself, oh, I, I, I see what you're doing. I see you're saving a little sweat for yourself. But here, as you know, when we preach through books of the Bible, we preach through everything in the book um, because we want to hear from what God has said in totality. And we, you guys don't just want me up here picking and choosing my favorite passages. We would be very kind of one-sided uh, disciples of Jesus. And so we're going to go where most people say don't go. Uh, we're going to do it because uh, God's word is good. And we're going to do it because God is going to give us uh, understanding in a passage that actually is really difficult to parse out, okay? But before we do that, I want us to look at Second uh, um, Peter. If you guys are okay with that, let me hear you say yes. Yes, all right, good. Okay, so let's look at Second Peter. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Second uh, Peter uh, 3, 15 and 16. This is phenomenal. Peter writes this. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them, of these matters. There are some things in them, his letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Okay, a couple things I love here. One, you see very early in the church that there was consensus in terms of what was scripture and what was not. You see, within scripture, Peter affirming Paul's letters as scripture, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, the second thing you see is that Peter says, hey, you guys know Paul's letters, and they're awesome, and there's some things in them that are really hard to understand. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That you have an apostle saying about another apostle's letters, there's a couple things in there that are hard to understand. And do you know what some people do when they come to these hard to understand things? These things that are obscure, they pretend that they have uh, more clarity than they actually do, and they twist them to their own destruction. And so we're looking at one of these passages that I think Peter uh, uh, would maybe see, or we can see from our cultural standpoint, that this is one of those passages in Paul's letters that we know all scripture is good, all scripture is God-beat, but it's also one of those passages that we read and we say, this is hard to understand. 
So I want us to make a deal. Are you guys okay with us making a deal? Yes? Okay. You, did you say I have no idea? Uh, depends on the deal. No, no, you can't do that. You have to just agree uh, with, with no, no knowledge of the terms. Here's the deal. Um, here's the deal and here are the terms. You uh, and myself alongside of you, let's be uh, receptive and open to God's word. And let's hear what God has to say through the Apostle Paul in this passage. Two, let's sit with it for a little bit. Hard passages in scripture are sort of like, I heard one preacher describe it like this, that are like hard candy. That if you take a hard candy and you just swallow it whole, uh, it, it, it's kind of going to hurt you. It's, it's, not, it's a painful process. But if you take a hard candy and you kind of let it, let it uh, uh, just kind of percolate or, or swirl and, and you, you suck on it and you just let it be there in your mouth, uh, sometimes you can kind of get to, uh, you, you can deal with it. You can begin to see what it's about. And so I want us to hear this passage, look at it, let the tensions of it um, push us, but then also sit with it and, and, and think, okay, what, what might be here for us, okay? And then my side of the deal is I will do my best to not explain everything about this passage because we'll be here too long, but to explain as much as I can and to not pretend to have clarity where there is no clarity, okay? So basically, I will not lie to you. Does that deal sound good? Okay, let's do it. So 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, the Apostle Paul writes this. Now, I commend you because you remember because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's a disgrace for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man not ought to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So this passage, you can, you can feel it, right? You see some of the stuff where you read that and say, what? I was talking about this with my wife this week, and, uh, and she was like, how are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm kind of stressed. I was like, why? I was like, well, I'm preaching on one of the top three most confusing and obscure passages in the New Testament. Um, and uh, she was like, oh, let's hear it. And I read it to her, and she said, good luck. <laughs> Got up and walked, walked, walked away. Um, so I was like, thank, thank you. Um, but it's funny, it's funny to me, if I can be candid with you, when I, when, when I have to preach passages 
uh, because God's word is good and truthful in all, in all of its totality, even things that seem obscure or strange, uh, I, I start usually the week so, um, so, so nervous or so confused uh, or, or just like, man, I don't, I, don't, I don't understand. And usually when Thursday or Friday comes, the, the light sort of cracks and I start to understand, oh, okay, here's what's happening. Here's, here's what God is doing. And so, so I'm encouraged uh, actually uh, at this passage, despite its obscurity and despite um, um, its sort of lack of clarity, it's stuff that doesn't make sense to us. Um, but as we work through this, uh, we can't answer everything, but I want to really hold up the main things here in this passage. Uh, one thing I want us to see first this passage uh, cannot really be understood if we don't understand the full scope of the Bible. So one of the things that's really important for us uh, to, to grasp, and hopefully you can think of this message uh, as an explanation of this text, but also a way to help you deal with really hard or confusing passages in Scripture. Uh, scripture is itself its best commentary on Scripture. So when we see something in Scripture that is obscure, we go to the other portions of, of Scripture that have clarity, and that clarity helps us understand the obscurity. Does that make sense? And so we can't understand anything in this passage if we don't understand the context of 1 Corinthians, and then if we don't understand the whole context of the Bible. Because the language here in this passage, particularly uh, verses 7 through 9, where the Apostle Paul is talking about creation, that, that, that woman was made out of man, and these different components of, of, of woman being uh, man's glory and man being uh, the glory of God, all these different things. What he's doing is all of that is dripped, dripping in the logic, imagery, and theological uh, um, uh, language of Genesis 1 through 3. And so we can't even come close to understanding uh, 1 Corinthians 11 if we don't first go back to Genesis 1 through 3. Paul is, Paul is doing something for us there. So in order to understand this passage, we need both the biblical background, most importantly, but we're also going to need some cultural background to make sense of this, okay? So first, let's go to the biblical background, Genesis uh, 1 through 3. Uh, Genesis 1 through 3 shows us the, the creation of God's world, and without looking extensively at all of it, we really need to uh, go to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, which is the kind of uh, background and language that, that Paul is drawing from here in verses uh, 7 through 9. So Genesis uh, 1, 26 through 28. We're going to do sort of a, a biblical framework here that's going to help us then get to 1 Corinthians 11. So the creation account in Genesis 1, 26 says this, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, so here we find that God creates both man and woman in his image, which helps us when we look at uh, 1 Corinthians eleven seven. we see that Paul talks about uh, man being made in the image of God and, and, and woman and being the glory of God and women being the glory of man. Paul is not discounting uh, uh, Genesis one twenty six, but he's making a specific point. But the framework he's working from is Genesis 1, where he's saying God made man and woman both in the image of God. Now, that has rich connotations that we miss. The biblical framework for 1 Corinthians 11, for all of Scripture, comes from Genesis 1.26 in relation to men and women, that men and women equally display the image and glory of God. Fully equal in their dignity, fully equal in their value, fully equal in their capacity. Because why? Because they are made in the image of God. 
Now, to be made in the image of God, what does that mean? It means that we are a mirror that reflects the likeness of God, that we have something intrinsic within us that is divine and displays uh, the reality of our creator. It means that we have divine fingerprints on our essence and on our being, which cannot be distinguished by anything we do, anything we say, anything that we believe. We are made in the image of God. And it's actually this reality properly understood that leads believers and Christians to fight against racism, to fight against sexism, to fight against human trafficking, all of these things because they are bad, but also because they denigrate people who are made in the image of God. This is very important for us to understand. We live in a culture where we prize dignity and value around achievement. You ever been in a circle when the question comes up, oh, what do you do? You, you ever notice how quickly we ask that question in America? It's usually, what's your name? And I don't care what your name is. What do you do? I will just call you plumber or professor. I don't need to know your name. What do you do? In other cultures and contexts, we don't do that. The question is, what is your name and what family are you from? What, what, what is your name and tell me about your, your, your people? What is your name and tell me about your culture? Right, but us, we so much tie achievement and value and dignity and worth into the things that we do and we achieve. And so Genesis 1 in Christianity gives us a very helpful corrective that says, more important than any man or woman's role, more important than any man or woman's leadership, more important than any man or woman's achievement, more important than their CV, more important than their resume, more important than their skills. Some of us have a lot of skills, some of us have zero. More important than any of those things, we are made in the image of God. Our value, capacity, dignity, and worth cannot be taken away or increased by anything else that we do. Now, coming from here, we, we continue to build. Genesis 2, we find out that not only has God made man in his, in his image and created male and female, two sexes, two genders, to display that image when he probably could have just done one. There's something beautiful about men and women that are made in the image of God that shine forth God's likeness in the world. God does that, and then we get to Genesis 2, and we see that Adam is reigning and ruling over creation. Genesis 2 tells us this, and then in 2.18, God says, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a suitable helper or a helper fit for him. Then out of the ground, uh, God works and then makes uh, the poetic language, says that he, he creates woman, Eve, out of man, which is where we get the, the phrase woman, which is literally out of man. And so we see that God creates man and woman in his image, but as Adam is reigning and ruling over creation, God says it's not good that man should be alone. Let me make for him a helper, a suitable helper. This is interesting. This is an important framework for us to understand 1 Corinthians 11. And what's interesting about this is God says it's not good for man to be alone. Now, we usually apply this in the context of marriage and weddings, right? That it's not good to, for man to be alone and look at this woman that, that has been provided for this man, right? That, that type of thing, right? Which there, there's some truth to that, and th that's great, and that's good, and, and so on and so forth. But really, the context, I think, of Genesis 1 through 3 is not so much about marriage, but it's also primarily about the creation of God's world. And notice Genesis 1, 26 and 28, after God says that he has made man and woman in his image, he gives them a task in Genesis 1, 28. He gives them the creation mandate. He says to have dominion over all the earth, rule this earth, cultivate this earth, subdue this earth, build culture, steward creation, rule over this. Why? Because you are my image bearers. You are my representatives 
You are my co-rulers over this world. You represent me, so rule in a righteous, good way. And so when we move from Genesis 128, we find that Adam is ruling, and he's naming seals, seals, and he's naming dolphins, dolphins, and he's naming chihuahuas, chihuahuas, and he's doing all of these things. But God, in that context, says, it's not good for you to be alone. Let me make a helper fit for you, a suitable helper. And we hear that, and we say, whoa, ladies, we say, don't you call me the help, right? We say, don't do that. I am not the help. But again, we have to understand the language of Scripture. Again, we have to uh, not just swallow the hard candy teaching, but, but sit with it for a second and, and sit with humility and say, maybe there's something here that I don't understand. And when we do that, we understand that the term helper is used 21 times throughout Old Testament Scripture. 16 of those times it's used to refer to God himself. And so God is saying, man cannot rule and reign over God's creation in a way that reflects my glory, in a way that actually is effective, unless they have some help, and this help is going to be like me. Let me create a suitable helper. Suitable helper has this language of like but unlike, complementary, similar in many ways, but different, balancing out, bringing different strengths, gifts, and goodness to the table. A suitable helper, for what purpose? For the purpose of reigning, ruling, stewarding, cultivating God's earth. This is beautiful. This is so encouraging. This means it doesn't matter what job you have. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter if you are, are a great leader or an incompetent leader. It means that you are made in the image of God, given the task to help care for God's creation, to love God, love your neighbor in God's world. This is wonderfully encouraging for us. And I want you to think of it this way, because this leads us to 1 Corinthians 11. God, in Genesis 1 and 2, is inviting men and women into a blessed partnership, or as one author puts it, a blessed alliance to advance his work in his world for his glory. And he says, man, you cannot do this by yourself. Let me raise up a suitable helper like me to partner with you in cultivating my world. That's pretty awesome. Think about it like this. God is sort of this, uh, this, this cosmic father who is going to hand the business of caring for the world. He's going to hand it down to his children. And he says, son, daughter, come in here. You are going to be the ones who are my image on earth. You're going to cultivate the family business. You're going to run the family business known as earth. You're going to cultivate it. You're going to rule over it righteously. I want you to build cities, do technology, someday create this smartphone thing that's actually going to cause more harm than good. But do that anyway. Do these things. Cultivate my world and my creation because you both bear my image. And you are distinct yet interdependent. And you shine forth the glory of God. Wonderful. Now, how well does this this blessed partnership of cultivating God's world, how, how, how well does this go for how long, right? For, for about 20 minutes, right? We get to Genesis 3, sin enters, and the partnership uh, between man and women cultivating God's world is broken. And then we only takes us getting to Genesis chapter 4, and we see the disastrous effects of sin in not only separating humanity from God, but then creating a fracture between this blessed partnership between man and woman. Okay, can we look at Genesis 4? Is that okay? Give me a yes if you're still with me. Okay, great. We're going to look at Genesis 4. You're like, do we have a choice? You do not have a choice. Um, we, we have to do it anyway. 
okay? Uh, so here, here is what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, God's design. I want it before we look at chapter 4. Uh, God's design is a blessed partnership between men and women to advance God's work for God's glory in God's creation as we share in the image of God in our distinct uh, ways. We are interdependent. Now, as an aside, uh, nothing like this was heard in the ancient Near East, right? The, this idea of, of, of man and woman being made in the image of God. Women and children were viewed as property. Genesis 1 comes up and elevates the view of women, uh, a blessed partnership. And then we get to Genesis 3, the partnership breaks. The blessed partnership turns from a blessed partnership to fractured relationships. Sin enters in. And here is we, here's where we have the first distortion between men and women. From a blessed partnership of mutual uh, interdependence and imaging the glory of God, we, we get into Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, and we find out from a dependent, interdependent kind of imaging of the glory of God that we, that we degrade into a, a, a uh, relationship that is marked by domination and subjection. And we see this immediately in Genesis 4 when we meet a character by the name of Lamech. And Lamech releases uh, what I believe is the first gangster rap song uh, with these lyrics. He says this uh, he, to his wives, right? Notice how the, the design is already going wrong. Lamech, right, uh, thinks he's, a, thinks he's uh, th this whatever, and he has two wives, and he says this, uh, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is 77-fold. Let me, let me translate this for you. This is the first gangster rap poetry in ancient Near East, right? This could have been on a gangster rap album, 50 Cent, Get Rich or Die Trying. It would fit right there, right in between uh, Heat and If I Can't, right? Track eight would fit perfectly. Lamech says this. He says, listen, my wives, I, who, who, who I subjugate, who I dominate, I, someone spoke bad to me and I killed them. And if Cain's revenge, if, if the brutality of Cain uh, is level 7, mine is level 77. No one is more brutal than me. No, no one is more dominating than me. No, no one is more violent than me. Now, is this part of God's design? Is this how men and women are to partner for the cultivation of, of God's world? Not at all. It didn't take long once sin entered for not only us to be separated from God by our sin, but also to have a fracture in the very relationships that ought to be cultivated together to do God's work in the world. Immediately, we see the fracture of sin. We don't have to look far in our culture to see the fracture of sin damaging relationships between men and women. I want to be sensitive to, to, uh, to, to, to people's experiences and all of those things, but uh, just briefly, even thinking about this Me Too movement that we've had over the last couple of years, we can see the fracture between men and women that comes from the sin of man. And we have to be honest that we see this as a Me Too moment, but really this is not a moment, this is just human history. So we see the fracture is deep. This provides us enough biblical background now to sort of come to 1 Corinthians with enough of our bearings, enough bearings to look at the chapter and not just run away. To look at the chapter and say, okay, this is who men and women are. Now, what does 1 Corinthians mean? We see the design, we see the brokenness, but in Corinth, we have both brokenness and we have little glimpses of redemption. We see the, the, the brokenness of sin, but we see the glimpses of redemption and God's design actually happening between men and women in Corinth. But in what way? And in what way could that be happening? We'll move to 1 Corinthians 11, but before we do that, we need some cultural backdrop. This is the first century, and in the first century, women are 
not educated. They are not afforded the opportunity. Women are viewed as property along with children. They are viewed as definitively inferior to men in social customs, in marriage, in the public sphere, and in religious worship. First century Judaism would not have women in the actual synagogue gathering. They would sit behind a veil. They were not brought to the table as participants in any way, shape, or form. And yet, from the very beginnings of the Jesus movement, from the very beginnings of Christianity, we see something completely different. We see something completely different building from the knowledge of Genesis 1, and we see the place of women elevated in a way not known to first century society. We see this in particular uh, with Jesus. Jesus in Luke 10, it's a passage with uh, Mary and Martha, and uh, one of them kind of gets, uh, gets rebuked by Jesus uh, for, for worrying a lot. But right before that happens, there's a really important verse for us to understand when we think about 1 Corinthians 11. Luke 10, 38 says this, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now we hear that and say, well, okay. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. In the first century, where women were viewed as property, where women are viewed as definitively less than men, where women were not allowed in nearly any worship gathering, where first century Judaism excluded them as second class, here comes a Jewish rabbi teacher, Messiah, son of God, comes on the scene, and guess what he's doing? He's inviting women to sit at his feet as a disciple, just as men would be. Jesus has in his entourage of disciples, women. Which when we look at the Gospels, and we don't have time to do this, we notice that some of his disciples' biggest confusion were about when Jesus spoke to women, when Jesus had women following him in this way. They, they were confused. They were confused because this was not what was done at that particular time. And so from the very beginnings of Christianity, we see us going back to Genesis 1, seeing that there is a blessed partnership between men and women in the work of God's redemption in the world. And Paul, contrary to the reputation that we might give him just from this chapter, Paul, as a disciple of Jesus, under Jesus' lordship, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write scripture, Paul carries on the same movement of Jesus. If we go to 1 Corinthians 7, you guys remember when I preached about sex a few weeks ago? You guys remember that? The other hard passage that we did? You're like, nope, we already blocked that out of our memory. Well, I did. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do you hear the interdependence there? This is not known in the first century. This is completely foreign to the first century. This is completely flipped the tables upside down in the first century. Ephesians 5, Paul goes on to say this, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, not as property, not as second class, but as they love themselves, as Jesus taught. So we see Paul upholding Genesis 1, upholding the teaching of Jesus, that we are distinct, yet equal in image and interdependent. And even here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is doing the same thing, even though we miss it. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5. Paul says, but every wife, you could even say woman, you could go, um, the language is, is, is sort of both. Every wife who prays or prophesies, let's just stop there. Every wife who prays or prophesies. 
Notice what Paul is saying. In the first century where women were not allowed in worship gatherings, in, in terms of Judaism, were looked at as property, were looked at as second class, Paul says, hey, in the church, when women pray and prophesy, we miss how revolutionary this is. Paul is saying women are doing public ministry in the church. Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians 11 is not that he keeps women down. He has already lifted them up higher than the first century has ever known, following the teachings of Genesis, following the teachings of Jesus. Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians 11 is that we not blur distinctions between men and women, but that we do this blessed partnership of God's work together in a way that has order and in a way that honors God. So Paul says, let the women pray and prophesy in the church unheard of. And then we get the other part of the passage. The thing that to us just sounds so strange. What is the deal with head coverings? Maybe show of hands. Any of you been in a church where you saw head coverings or that was a thing? Buddy, yeah, yeah. And, and if you saw that, it was probably never explained, but it was just there. You're just like, what is, do I need to get one? Like, what is this, right? What, what is the deal with this? Again, we need some cultural context to help us a little bit. In first century Greece, in this setting, dress for men and women was very similar, except for the woman's head covering. That was the one distinguishing thing. Now, this isn't a head covering like a do-rag. Uh, that would be great. We wouldn't have a problem with this. It was everyone wear do-rags, right, when they pray and prophesy. It'd be fantastic. No, this is talking about sort of your cloak or shawl that kind of comes over the top of your head and covers the, the top of your head. This was a covering for hair alone. So in the first century, this was the one distinguishing clothing mark, um, uh, uh, distinguishing factor between men and women. Secondly, Paul talks about women having their heads shaved and says uh, it's shameful. We hear that in verses uh, uh, four, four, and, four, five, and six. Uh, wh what is that? Well, having a shaved head in the first century meant something that it doesn't mean in 2018. It meant that you were either a slave, you were a, 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 an adulterer. Uh, it, it, it may have meant that you also were engaged in cult prostitution. It had significant markers and connotations um, that immediately meant something to anyone who saw it. Okay, so these are some of the things that help us understand this. So to not wear a head covering in the first century had all sorts of visible, audible, <gasps> gasping moments that sent a message to anyone seeing a person a woman without a head covering, that they were associated potentially with worshiping a particular false idol, that there was this element of, of shame, that they were uh, maybe potentially seen in first century uh, trying to let people know that they were, they were available, we'll just say for, uh, for, for dating and, and, and whatever, right? They, it had all of those types of connotations. I wish there was an analogy we could think of here uh, for, for 2018 that wouldn't be a uh, that wouldn't be uh, weird or shameful. Um, I kept trying to think of one. I was like, no, nah, I don't think any of these work, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. So you insert your own analogy of what this would be like, right, in 2018. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But imagine being in Corinth and coming into the house church of Corinth where a woman not wearing her head covering meant any of those things and coming into a church gathering in a house, intimate gathering, and seeing women without head coverings. Your immediate thought is, do they worship the idol of Aphrodite? Are they interested in me? Are, are they trying to, is, is, is this person trying to dress like a man? All of these thoughts would come into your head. And guess what all of those thoughts are not centered on? 
God. Paul's concern in this section is that when the church gathers, we do so in such a way that we can worship God together and not be distracted by other things. So Paul says, women in Corinth, pray and prophesy, but do it with this head covering. Paul's desire in this passage is that they create no unnecessary offense, but that the worship gatherings are ordered and God is glorified in all. He's going to, uh, one of the themes for this section is 1 Corinthians 14, 40. He says, but in all things should be done decently and in order. He's giving uh, parameters for what the church worship should look like. And it's easy in this passage for us to miss the, the, the uh, forest for the trees. Uh, but Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 11 is this, that uh, we affirm firm uh, the creation distinctions between the sexes, and that distinction is seen in the way that we dress and appear in a way that makes sense to our culture, right? Imagine how distracting it would be if we all came into church, and we all came into church, and, and the women said, hey, men at the beach don't have to wear shirts, so we're going to do the same thing, and we're going to go to church and, and do that. Just, just, I mean, that just would not work, would it? Now, our attendance in Somerville would, would skyrocket uh, through the roof because it's a strange city, right? But it just, it just wouldn't work. There would be so much confusion and chaos in the life of our church. And if there's confusion and chaos in the life of a church, guess what's being missed? The worship of God. Guess what's being missed? Men and women partnering to cultivate God's world. Guess what's being missed? Us living out the image of God side by side. So this is Paul's point that we would... Men would be as men, women would be as women, and we would partner for the work of the church in God's world. Now, a couple of the verses here that are confusing that I want to try to touch on. Uh, verse 10. Um, the wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Uh, I tried this with my wife. Uh, she asked me a question. I said, because of the angels. And she said, what are you talking about? She was very angry with me. Uh, so I tried, to, I tried to apply that answer to as many questions that people asked me this week. Because of the angels. Why are you sitting there? Because of the angels, right? All, all sorts of things. And uh, as, as, it, as we feel it in this passage, you just say, I, I, I don't understand. Now, I can't pretend to understand this any more than maybe you do, but I've looked at all of the different options. Um, men and, uh, the women were praying and prophesying, which Paul had encouraged and Paul wanted them to do, as long as it was done with order. And prophecy, when we look at the scriptures, is often intermediated by angels. And so maybe this is angels overseeing the church gathering, um, wanting to, to see what is happening, or it's angels that are part of this kind of word of prophecy that comes forward. We see that in, in Exodus uh, as well. So that's, that's maybe what that means, but it, it's hard to know. But Paul's big point is that it is shameful for women to not wear a head covering in the first century because in doing so, they were appearing to look and be like men. And Paul says it's shameful. It brings shame on the community. Outsiders would see this and feel ashamed. Paul says this is blurring the creation order distinctions. So pray and prophesy, but pray and prophesy in a way that doesn't blur the distinctions of what it means to look and be a man or look and be a woman. Now, Claire Smith, uh, who writes on this passage, I think is really helpful. It's a great summary. I want to read her quote, and then I want us to get to some, some application uh, for us from this passage. Claire Smith writes this. She says, the fundamental reason uh, for, uh, for this passage and Paul's desires here was that this garment, the head covering, represented the ordered relationships between men and women that reflected the relationship of God in Christ. Me Paul wanted men and women to look different because in looking different, they would align themselves with the order built into creation. 
and even in the life of God. When men covered their heads while they were praying or prophesying, possibly motivated by disguised spiritual one-upmanship, they were in effect denying their responsibilities as men by dressing like women. When they did that, they dishonored their heads, their physical head, and their metaphorical relational head, Christ, this idea that Christ is their, their authority, their, their source, their Lord. She goes on, when married women did not cover their heads, however, perhaps they were taking mistakenly their newfound freedom in Christ too far. When they did this, they brought shame on their literal head and their metaphorical relational head, their, their husband, because they were in effect denying their re relational responsibility as wives. There's, this is the, the sum point she makes. They might as well have turned up to the church gathering dressed like an adulteress or a prostitute. So this is what is up with this passage. This is what Paul is trying to uphold, this distinction that the church and things would be done in order. Uh, Claire Smith goes on, she says this, she says, I'm not sure in our culture we have a single piece of clothing that functions as a cultural equivalent to the first century head covering, which I would then agree with her and say yes. So we then see verses 13 and 14 where Paul says, does not nature teach you that if a man wears long hair, I think he had my dreads in mind, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Okay, so what, is, what does this mean? This is kind of one of the last big questions in this passage. What, what exactly does this mean? Well, I think Paul is showing us that by nature in most cultures at almost all times, long hair is associated with uh, women. It's a sign of being uh, uh, feminine. And short hair is associated with men, a sign of being masculine. However, the Bible itself shows us that this is not always the case. You remember a biblical character who was very strong and had very much uncontrolled anger. Anyone remember, remember this character by the name of Samson? Samson's defining mark and trademark was his long dreads, right? That's why I imagine long, beautiful dreads, blonde tips at the end, uh, which I want to do, but my wife will not let me. Um, number six actually talks about the vow that, that Samson had taken, a Nazarite vow uh, that says, all the days of his vow, no razor shall touch his head until the time is complete, which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his head grow long. Amen to all dreadheads. Let the locks of his head grow long. Drink no wine, touch no dead bodies, right? The sign of consecration. So again, we let Bi the Bible interpret the Bible. We can see and understand that, okay, this means something, but maybe it doesn't mean what we think it means. Maybe uh, scripture is actually showing us that there are not, it's not contradicting, but there are different hair lengths in different places for different purposes that make sense with our culture, as long as it's not blending, intentionally trying to be something that we're not, just breaking the creation distinctional lines that God has given for our flourishing. So in some, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 wants this. He says, let the church be unified, free from distractions that keep us from loving God and doing his work. So women, pray and prophesy, but don't do it in a way that blurs these distinctions that come from God's created order. That brings shame on the church in the eyes of our city. Instead, honor God, glorify God in this blessed partnership as you serve the church and lead and make disciples together. So application for us from this passage not a lot. Not a lot. Here is the application, though, I think, for us. If we look at verse 11, I think it's a particular word for us. We don't live in a culture where we have a distinction, uh, a garment that sends a, a distinction of whether we are men or women or we're trying to be one or the other. We don't have that. So, so much of this passage in that way, the, the, the actual application of this passage doesn't really hit us uh, in, in 2018 in the same way. But I think the core of this passage really does and is important. Look at verse 11. Paul, 
almost says this to make sure that we don't twist this passage in a weird way, kind of as Peter wrote. Paul says this, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Paul is reminding us that despite these cultural markers that we, that we may have or may not have, Paul is reminding us that there is a beautiful mutuality and interdependence between man and woman. And that if we try to break those distinctions, deny those distinctions, downplay those distinctions, we slow down the blessed partnership of doing God's work together that he has invited us into in Genesis 1. And notice what Paul says in verse 11 here. He says, in the Lord. This has this connotation that in Jesus, we are mutual and interdependent on each other. It has this connotation, if we think back to where we started in Genesis, it has this connotation that Jesus is redeeming what was broken between men and women. Jesus is redeeming that, that we might be unified, distinct, and interdependent as men and women doing the work of God in the world together. This is exciting. Jesus is putting back together what sin has fractured and broken between men and women who were given charge over God's creation. But for so much and for so long, we are divided against each other. Jesus is redeeming that. And the church of Corinth was a picture, a broken picture, but a picture nonetheless. So a couple of things I want us to see from this, that we need each other, men and women, distinct, equal, interdependent to achieve the work that Christ has given us. Think about this. Christ calls his people to do what? To love God, to love our neighbor, to care for God's world and creation, and to make disciples. That is work that is too big for just one side of the gender equation to uphold. There is distinct interdependent things that men bring to that table, that women bring to that table. We need one another to get this project of God's redemption done. Will we be unified in working together for this task? Will we do so in a way that honors God, unifies one another, and actually does the work of Jesus together? Will we let sin fracture our relationships with one another? Or will we let grace put them back together that we might actually effectively make disciples and care for God's creation as partners in God's work? That's the question for us. Paul has in mind here, in this whole section, he has in mind this idea of not just holding to our rights, but thinking to what puts the whole community in advantage. I want us to think about this when we think about this particular text. That what would it look like for us as men and women in God's creation, in God's church, to not just say, what are my rights, but to say, how can we build one another up to get done the task of redemption that God has given us? There's a real sense, I think, in which for the women in, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, that they had experienced so much of this gift of God's elevating them right to their, to their rightful place that they said, hey, we don't need to wear this anymore. We can be exactly like men. There needs to be no distinction among us. And Paul says, not quite. Be all that God has made you to be, but you don't become a man and men don't become women. Be all that God has made you to be and do God's work in redemption together. And here in this, we see Christ. 
Notice that odd phrase at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 11 that, that says that, that God is the head of Christ. Strange phrase. But here we see Jesus modeled. That Jesus we see in Ephesians 2, Jesus says, what can I do to serve this whole people? And that is the posture he wants men and women to take in God's world. Not to say, what can I do to be seen? What can I do to be on top? What can I do to put myself above this other person? What can I do to put myself above this other gender? No, what can I do that is going to lead to the flourishing of God's creation? And Jesus embraces that attitude himself. He says, God the Father is my head. God the Father is my authority. What does it look like for me to serve him in a way that brings flourishing to men and to women? And that ultimately leads him where? Leads him to the cross. And Jesus, in doing that, shows us a new pattern of relating to one another as men and women. We obviously want to stand for our rights. Absolutely. But that is not the only question that we ask because we follow Jesus. We don't just say, how do I stand for my rights? We say that, but we also say, how do I serve the other? That's what Paul is concerned about in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, yes, women, pray and prophesy. That is what God has called you to do. But don't just grab hold of that. Think about how can I do what God has called me to do? How can I seize these rights and also serve this city and this church? He has a word for men here. Don't try to be like women. Be what God has made you to be, but ask within that, how can you serve the other? And this is what Jesus himself does and teaches us. Christ says this. He says, the Gentiles exercise authority by lording it over you. Not so with my people. Whoever would be great among you must be servant. Whoever would be first among you must be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Speaking about his sacrifice for our sin, let me just ask you this in closing. What would be different in our world if men and women looked at one another and said, how can I uphold your rights and how can I serve you? What would be different? Would we come a little bit closer to the Genesis 1 picture of men and women reigning and ruling over creation together? Would we come a little bit closer to actually having one another's backs and building one another up rather than trying to subjugate the other? Now, I know most of this speaks to men, but wouldn't things be different? If we look at the trajectory of history, it is men that need to heed this word, but wouldn't things be different? If we grabbed hold of what Jesus shows us here, the pattern Jesus has shown us on the cross. So in closing, I want us to think about this. Do you really grasp what it means for you to be made in the image of God? Or has value by achievement, value by position, value by leadership, has any of those things come in and polluted your sense of self? The greatest thing anyone could ever say about you is that you are made in the image of God. The second thing I want you to think about is not only the question of what are my rights, but how can I serve and build up those around me? Because God has called us, men and women, into a blessed partnership to advance his work in his creation. Our sin fractures that, but Jesus is working to redeem it. Will we trust him and will we walk according to his word? Let's take a moment to pray in silent reflection. I want to encourage you in this time to ask God, Lord, what do you have for me from this text? If you're here and you're not a Christian, 
you have heard one of the most obscure passages, hopefully explained help. So I want you to uh, ask God if you feel comfortable with this to say, God, if, if you are true, if Jesus really is the one that serves and lays down his life to restore me back to you, if any of that is true, would you make that real to me? Let's take a moment to pray silently and then I'll lead us in prayer aloud. Father, we thank you for making us in your image. God, we thank you for giving us this incredible task, both men and women, to cultivate and care for your creation. We thank you that, God, um, the way that uh, society wants to put markers of, of worth and value on us, th those things, uh, they, they don't stick. Uh, th that we are made in your image. Uh, we are loved by you. Uh, we are redeemed by Christ. And so, God, we ask that you would uh, be working in us uh, to redeem uh, attitudes or postures, um, wounds that, that keep us uh, from stepping into worshiping you and living out this task that you have given us. To be those that, that care for your world, that love you, that love our neighbor, and that push the work of your kingdom through disciple making, that push that forward. God, would you come and bring redemption in those places, Lord? where we need it most. Lord, I pray uh, for us, Lord, if there are senses of inferiority or superiority, would you show us, God, that we are made and loved by you? And God, also, would you show us and make deep and real to us the service of Jesus that has brought us into your kingdom, that he has not just seized God, what was rightfully his, but he has served the other. He has loved us in our sin. Lord, would you make us like him that we would partner together to do your work in this world. We pray this in Christ's name.